Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Matt Cummings. All right, tonight we induct another composer into the OBS Hall of Fame. Here's a little hint. It's gonna be great. I might have gotten the intervals a little mixed up, but hey, it doesn't matter. It's atonal. And then in Shock Talk, we celebrate opening night of the Metropolitan Opera's 2018 season by looking at future programming initiatives from music director Yannick Nizé-Séguin and pass along some tips for first-time attendees. Plus, George pays tribute to David DiChiara, general manager of Michigan Opera Theater, who died last week at age 83. And around 9.40 p.m., it's the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land with our team's hot takes on those stories. Of course, don't forget, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard during the two-minute drill segment. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your take on these week's stories. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. And now, without any further ado, Oliver Camacho is in the house. Yes, we're actually here on the red carpet of Open Night <laughs> Opera. What are you wearing, uh, Oliver? Uh, I'm wearing uh, a suit that I bought at Marshall's that Ooh. fits me really well. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes it just happens. You never know when you're going to find that one suit. <laughs> yeah. that's like, I don't even need to go to a tailor. And that's, uh, that's Matt Cummings. What are you wearing, Matt? I'm wearing some invalid chic tonight. Ooh. <laughs> Matt wasn't an accident. He lost use I of fell, Yeah, I fell and broke my wrist over the weekend. So our, You look beautiful. Yeah. I'm on the yeah. disabled list. Yeah, I think, I think, <laughs> I think it's a very good look. straight friend, for those um, who don't talking about. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I know what he's talking about. I wish I didn't. Uh, Tobias, what are you wearing on the red carpet? As always, I like to show off my best assets, so I'm wearing a shirt that goes down to my navel. Mm, 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 mm. And that's it? Nothing else? Turning all the heads. That's it. That's it. All right, good. (laughs) All the monocles are falling off. (laughs) I am wearing only the finest sack cloth, um, you know, just uh, hand woven, uh, and it's made for my sack of potatoes. Isn't that a little gauche after Labor Day? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, speaking of the poverty of uh, <laughs> of uh, wearing a sackcloth at the Met opening, we're going to get into a segment, the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble. Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Once again, thanks to Norm Waddell for that amazing intro, perhaps undercut slightly by the drastic shift in mood there. And we should thank Aaron Copeland, too. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. We, we, we're big Copeland fans here on the show, but we're bigger 
Berg fans. And that's what we're talking about today, or at least I am. I, uh, I was my turn. I draw, drew the short straw out of the hat this week to induct the latest member into our Hall of Fame. And I believe this is only our second composer. This isn't quite Stockhausen. This is actually, as you have already gathered, Alban Maria Johannes Berg, or Albi, as I'll probably refer to him for the majority of this segment. Uh, he was born in 1885, um, and he was, uh, he was not a child prodigy. He wasn't a Mozart or a Beethoven even. Uh, but he did start to teach himself music once he started hitting 15, but he didn't get much formal training until he started lessons with our good friend Arnold Schoenberg in 1904. And, uh, of course, legendarily at that time, uh, Schoenberg was well on his way to ru- ruining music forever, if you, depending on who you ask. Um, and uh, so because of this association with Schoenberg and the second Viennese school, he started to input atonality into his compositions. Um, and he's very much sort of a... a, a a kind of a transitionary. What's that? What is the that? A tonality or the second Viennese school? Oh, either one. Oh. Well, these are good Ooh. questions, Matt. Well, a tonality uh, is actually kind of a poorly defined term. I believe the technical term is uh, the technical definition is it just is not sat in any particular home key, um, which means it sounds odd to your ears in the Western musical notation system. But it can because, still have a pitch center. Yes, it can. It can still have a pitch center, um, but it is not normally. Uh, it's not. Uh, keys like B flat or harm or like dominant chords the way that exactly. we know it by listening to you know classical music pop music rock music yeah. musical theater like all of that stuff country music yeah all country th- music you know. especially plus uh, or minus <laughs> um, but because of this uh, because of this influence um, began, uh, this this all came from Arnold Schoenberg who formed the second Viennese school uh, which is a much more important uh, musical school of thought than the first Viennese school because name any composer from the cer- first Viennese school Mozart. you can't you can't <laughs> The first, hush, no, no, hush, that's Matt. not true. The first Viennese school is the Viennese <laughs> classicism from the late 17, early 1800s. People oh, like man. Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, like most of what people think of when they're talking classical music. And part of the reason why they named themselves the second Viennese school is because they wanted to is- assert that this new avant-garde style of composing music was just as important to music history. And it was going to be a huge influence in shaping music of the centuries to come. And they were absolutely right. Uh, of course, the atonality and eventually serialism, 12-tone composition sort of gained ground with the second Viennese school, with composers like Berg and Schoenberg and Webern and people like that. Now, one thing, uh, as you were t- we were talking a little bit before about this segment, uh, Matt, and you mentioned that, um, and I agree with this, that uh, if you like any of the second Viennese school composers, you like Berg the most. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, first of all, his, uh, his music is tied to, I think, a more traditional sense of German romanticism. Uh, I think the most important factor in my eyes is his sense of drama. Uh, he tends to make sure that whatever text he's using uh, is very married to the sounds that are being produced by the orchestra and uh, and the accompaniment. Uh, and this kind of got into trouble uh, occasionally uh, because if you're composing with this sort of uh, huge romantic forces with these strange dissonant harmonies that were uncomfortable to listen to, you were kind of forced to make the drama match that complexity and that sort of darkness inherent in the stories that he wrote for. Yeah, and, and I- yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. I'd add, I'd add on to that that uh, what Berg really understood uh, in a way that comes through his music is that he was someone who knew how to break the rules because he knew how they worked. Mm-hmm. And so he knew when to incorporate some of the old, you know, like signposts of how music is constructed in terms of some sort of... Uh, melodic motif like little like, like themes his use of themes or his use of chords uh even though it isn't the like the the traditional harmony that we think of it it follows the same kind of blueprints in a different way and that comes from his understanding of how instruments and how voices work so even though it's new and different it's not unsingable it's not unplayable it is 
just really challenging. Yeah, and it's 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 remarkably graspable as well. I find as an audience member, um, if you listen to um, Voltsek, which we're going to talk about a little bit in more detail, um, you you hear these 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 lines that are taken directly out of you know military marching band styles and like oh I recognize that and then you hear uh, this sort of lush late German romanticism you're like oh I recognize that these these familiar things that are used in a way to heighten the drama in a very programmatic way uh, in contrast to a lot of Schoenberg's pieces and especially in contrast to a lot of Webern's pieces who ended up being the sort of the dominant influence in the second Viennese school uh, but going there, yeah forward. there are a lot more abstract they, yes. they Schoenberg likes to talk about how how he was composing colors instead mm. of you know he in, instead of music he was well, when com- you listen to Wozzeck and I think part of the reason that it still is in the canon today and where people aren't opposed to listening to it it's not exhausting to years because it's still even though there is an atonal aspect to it within the fragmented segments of how it's broken down it's a short enough opera and there's enough melody and like you said with the orchestration it's still lush in the it and, is gorgeously orchestrated yeah and so it's really interesting that he's able to capture that kind of sound and and create that kind of atmosphere within the realm of atonality <laughs> i think the most uh, i think a lot of that actually came from sort of his experiences as a young composer because if you look at like uh, uh what schoenberg was doing at the time there's a famous incident where um schoenberg finished his Göre leader uh, which of course is a very late romantic work not in the style that he was com- uh, by the time he finished it he was well beyond that he was into atonality and putting his toes into into serialism uh, and there was a big massive standing ovation at the premiere of Guru Leader uh, and uh, Schoenberg refused to walk out on stage and bow for it because he thought it was just so mo- so beneath him, even though he had written the piece. Contrast that with Berg, whose Altenberg leader um, <laughs> sparked a riot just a few a few months before the Rite of Spring uh, riot in 1913. Uh, it became known as Scandal Concert um, because uh, because of you know the riot Which that means happened. Scandal Concert. Oh, for thank those you for that. that oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's our expert here. He he knows uh, he knows everything about uh, languages. Um, but this 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 concert actually, you know, uh, resulted famously in a punch. Um, uh, someone got punched in the face, and there was a lawsuit over it, and it was a it was a big mess. Um, but because of this, there was a, a <laughs> at the trial, there was an operatic composer there who who, who testified that the punch was the most melo- melodious sound in the entire concert, <laughs> which is so funny to me. But Berg's reaction to that, in contrast with Schoenberg, was not, oh, I'm proud, I'm doing something weird and different. He with, basically withdrew the piece, and it was not performed again in his lifetime, because he, he more than a lot of the other Second Viennese composers, realized that you do need some sort of connection to the audience, some sort of themes relevant to them present in the music and in the words you were setting to music. And with that, we can talk a little bit about Wozzeck. So Berg only wrote two operas. Uh, the first was Wozzeck. It premiered in 1925. Uh, he spent a lot, a lot of time composing it. Part of that was because um, he was interrupted by World War I, as a lot of artists at the time were. Um, but uh, it was very much... Um, a unique piece. It was the first opera to be composed in sort of the 20th century avant-garde atonal style. Um, and it is a very <laughs> stressful piece of music to listen to oh my in gosh, the best possible it way. Yeah. Uh, it's, oh, it's so good. Um, I, it's, and as we said before, even though the piece is atonal and it's got this uh, avant-garde music going on, uh, the way it's organized is kind of brilliant. Uh, for example, Act Two, Scene Two, uh, is actually a fugue rather than a traditional, you know, aria or trio or uh, or these operatic terms. He uses things like fugues, and he finds all these sort of the implications of that in that scene. And then in a different scene, uh, there uh, the scene of the death of Wozzeck, for example, is a variation on a hexachord, which is a six-note chord. And the tavern scene is based on a certain rhythmic pattern, where everything is based on the derivations. Of of that rhythm. There's not really any of these traditional arias and recitatives that you would might find in a normal, I mean, they're there, but they're not 
they're not as on the surface as you would find in a normal opera, but you have these organizational elements which help support the drama and keep people sort of gl- uh, grasping what's going on, even if they never heard this kind of music before. Should we play a clip for the audience out Absolutely. There? So this clip that I want to play is actually, um, uh, this is uh, the, I believe this is the Boulez recording uh, with Walter Berry singing Wozzeck, and this is the very end of the opera where, spoilers, uh, he kills uh, Marie, and it's based on the leitmotif of a single note. This scene is based around the single note B, which symbolizes death. Dead. <laughs> yeah, I went to go, I went to go see this at Lyric uh, either three or two or three years ago when they did it, and it you know it's only about an hour and a half, and you leave and you're just exhausted. Yeah, and you feel kind of dirty because you've just been watching everyone just rag on this poor guy yeah. for an hour yeah. and a half to the point where he snaps. This and- this scene, uh, I saw this in Vienna uh, uh, several years ago, and it is this sing. It was the single most stressful, viscerally stressful. Uh, scene of theater, live theater I've ever seen in my life. Uh, just there, before that clip, there's a, just a moment of silence, and then that B comes in, that death note, and you know it's inevitable, and it just builds and builds and builds. It's and cinematic in its sound, too. It, it really what is. What was the staging like? Do you recall? Oh, it was actually terrible staging. I don't nah. recommend it. This was, <laughs> mm-hmm. this was at the Staatsoper. It's a very Vienna. old 80s one. But the, the performances were good, The uh, and, of course, the music stands on its own in a really remarkable way. But even though the music does stand on its own, it does not lose sight of the fact that the text has to propel the, the music, going back to Monteverdi. Um, these themes that Wozzeck explores are very relevant, well, certainly relevant for the time, and are very relevant now, sadly. Uh, there's themes talking about poverty, uh, what people do if they're in desperate con- uh, conditions. There's a big theme of the play where um, Wozzeck talks about how hard it is to be moral as a poor person. Um, and it's uh, it's just such a good opera, and I, I could talk about it forever. But we got to talk about we got to talk about Berg's other opera, Lulu. Uh, and so uh, good old Albi, uh, he uh, he did Wozzeck, and Wozzeck was actually a hit. Um, there were no riots associated with it, although there were obviously detractors here and there. Uh, and so he started work on his next opera, Lulu. But of course, at that time, uh, this is the beginning of the 1930s. Uh, Hitler is rising to power. Any associations with musical avant-garde um, or jazz, there's some saxophony, jazzy kind of elements in Lulu. Or anything cultural outside the mainstream exactly. of what they wanted to project. Even just the association with Arnold Schoenberg, who was himself Jewish, was enough to get you on the bad list of that. So because of that... Uh, Berg never quite finished Lulu. He did actually compose the entire thing, um, but the 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 version that's played now, um, a big chunk of the last act is actually com- is actually uh, re- orchestrated by uh, someone else. It was um, finished in 1979 after his wife died. Exactly, because she said she didn't want. She didn't want to, it. Yeah, it was interesting Berg's to me wife about yeah, yeah when Berg's wife died. It was interesting to me that it still got performed as much as it did between 1935 and 1979 when it was finished, and when she died. 
Well, I think I think I think the big thing, the the reason it works, because I've I've heard both versions. Um, I think the reason it worked so well was because the the final scene of the opera, uh, Berg actually did complete as a part of the suite to sort of advertise the opera beforehand. So it's just really fortuitous that you actually had the final scene, arguably the most important scene, already made, uh, ready to go. Um, but I think uh, Lulu. Uh, is kind of occupies a special place in my heart. I mean, I, re I really do love Wozzeck a lot, but Lulu kind of takes it to another level. Uh, compositionally, it uses all the, the techniques of Wozzeck <laughs> and things like that, um, but it also adds in uh, the serialism, the beginning of the 12 tones, uh, and and it's it's in many ways it's a lot more complex and more controversial. It deals a lot with gender, uh, which are of course things we still deal with now very much so. Even even when a, a few of the issues in Wozzeck seem to have faded somewhat, um, I, I like to just read off a little quote by Barbara. You mean Hannigan. your wife's not being is not cheating on you with the drum major? <laughs> no, I mean well, if you don't know the plot of Lulu, um, if you if you just kind of read the plot out. Uh, Essentially, it looks like a 19th century femme fatale uh, who goes around and the people who she has in relationships with have their lives ruined or they get murdered and she herself is killed at the end. But in the details, in the poetry that is used, in the music that is used to support her, there is something that comes out that is much more complex. Uh, I, would, I would even say almost empowering in some ways. Uh, it, it's, it's, she's just an absolutely fascinating character. I want to read this quote by Barbara Hannigan, who is kind of known for her portrayal, pray, excuse me, portrayal of Lulu. Uh, she says, quote, Lulu is one of the most honest people I have ever met on or off stage. I love her because she is true to herself. She forces others to see her for who she is. She survives. She is angry, risky, triumphant. She fails and loves wholeheartedly. She lives every moment with a complete and committed presence. She is everything I could hope to be. End quote. That's, that's pretty cool. Should we listen to a clip to take us home? We should absolutely listen to a clip. So this is, um, this is at the end of, I believe, this is at the beginning of the second act, end of the second act, middle of the second act. Uh, I forget exactly where it is in the opera. But Lulu has been busted out of prison, which she wound up in for the aforementioned uh, trail of bodies uh, for lo former lovers and stuff. And she sings this glorious line of, being, uh, of talk, uh, singing about freedom and being out in the open. So let's, uh, let's hear what she has to say. That was Teresa Stratus singing the uh, that scene from uh, Lulu in the Pierre Boulez recording, uh, the premiere recording of that finalized version from the 70s, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I could talk about Berg all day, but we got to move on. And welcome to the Hall of Fame, Alban Berg. It's opening night at the Metropolitan Opera this week. We'll take a look inside the New York Times point-counterpoint on what to expect coming up next. That is only on Opera Box Score and WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Well, we're all dressed up in our finery. I've got my potato sack. Oliver's got his fancy business going on. Uh, And we're talking about opening night at Metropolitan Opera. Samson and Delilah is the uh, is the opening one for the the season, but it's also kind of a new era in the Met history. Oh, did something happen at the something, Met this year? Something <laughs> happened. You may have noticed. <coughs> Levine, <coughs> Levine. Uh, sorry, I had a little bit of a frog in my throat there, but we have sort of an interesting situation. We got sort of dueling New York Times articles on the subject of the future of the Mets, particularly this coming season this week, in the wake of the. Levine scandals and what's going to happen coming up next. Uh, so, uh, uh, Oliver, you want to talk about it a little bit? Well, I don't know if it's so much dueling articles as that. Uh, Tomasini wrote something earlier on this month, and then Michael Cooper seems to have answered all the questions that were raised <laughs> in the article that Tomasini wrote. But in essence, uh, Tomasini, uh, to start you know the fall arts season, wrote an article about um, looking at you know new leadership at. Uh, the New York Philharmonic and the Met with uh, Jaap van der Zweden. Is that his name? Jaap, yep, Jaap van Zweden. Jaap, Zweden. Yeah, I'm going to add extra Zweden. words in there. <laughs> Jaap van Zweden at the Philharmonic and obviously Nizé Sagan. And it's a lot of, yeah, of consonants in yeah. those names. <laughs> uh, and it, I, I think Thomasini's premise for the article is correct that we don't really know exactly what Nizé Sagan on September whatever 11th. On September 11th, what Nizé Sagan had in store uh, as artistic director, and you know, I think he maybe was expecting more time to develop his strategy, but now he has to. Well, now he's jumped in. Yeah, he's, yeah, yes. Yeah, so and, and, and the article meant. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, are, you go first. No, <laughs> make no. up your mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is the article mentions that he's only conducting three shows, and it seems like they're waiting for his artistic vision to be shared. And you know, it's interesting. And we talked about this in our pre-production meeting. He's been forced into a situation two years earlier, two or yeah. four. And you have it's to keep him earlier. I mean, he's still 2020 when he was kind of yeah. supposed to be a soft open and yeah. then a, and right, a slow right. reveal as he took on more and more of the responsibilities. Yeah. But with, you know, there was supposed to be some other hands guiding that ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And most of this stuff was planned at least five years ago, exactly. if not more. And I'm and he was not really I don't think he was that big of a, the that big of a part of the conversation at that point, at yeah. if at all. Yeah. Yeah. So Anthony Thomasini's article uh, goes on to say that, you know, what we know about. Nazis again is that he's gay. He actually had to. I don't know why he had to point that out in the article. But it was you know, kind of I, an odd. When I read it, I was like, there. I can't wait till that doesn't have to be a part of it. Well, I do think that it's a little bit in contrast to uh, other people who have been very, very private about their yeah. personal lives for uh, reasons that have become clear over yeah, the last year. I guess that makes sense. Can we sense read that little quote? Though, and so, yeah, we're t- he, at forty-three, he brings a change in generation. Mister Levine is seventy-five. He fits the times in being nonchalant about his life as a partnered gay man. And his time in Philadelphia has shown he's comfortable in the role of a public cultural figure. And just the fact that he, you know, the Met is not exactly the most liberal institution in the yeah. entire world. Like, there's a lot no. of old, there's a lot of old money, there's a lot of society <laughs> who frequent it. And this is a, this is an influential and very visible gay figure in a world where there are a lot of them. But still, he's yeah. like way it's out. Like the sky is blue. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think this is yeah. breaking news that yeah. he's the first gay man in opera, yeah. but. <laughs> But he's becoming the face of the biggest opera house yeah. in America, if not the world. Yeah. And the fact that he is from a, a community that historically has had some issues with uh, being accepted that uh, yeah. that that is that does kind of feel like uh, I think it's I think what's novel about it is that it doesn't feel like a big shift. Like it it is just kind of a throwaway line. So then Tomasini uh, kind of closes up his portion of the article about Nazis again by saying uh, that so far. Uh, the conductor's only spoken vaguely about what he wants to do at the Met, 
uh, such as fostering high standards and camaraderie, which is a goal for all of us. Great. Here yeah, at Opera yeah, Box great. Sorry, Weston. Uh, <laughs> championing Whoa. overlooked works. Doesn't everybody say that? Yeah. And generating commissions without getting too specific. And then I'm going to turn and it over to Matt. And on September 23rd, yeah. Matt. Yeah, so two weeks later, Michael Cooper comes out with this with, with, a, with another article that talks about how they have like all of these specific plans to take the Metropolitan Opera out into the city and do cha- do productions of chamber operas at Brooklyn Academy of They're Music. Put it on wheels and just push yeah. it around to Brooklyn. Hey, including <laughs> operas by, you know, Missy Mazzoli. Fre- yeah. uh, mm-hmm. who, commissions. Commi- new, new commissions by female composers. That'll be the first yes. operas written by female composers that the that the Met is doing. About yeah. time, too. I mean, they've only had two two operas even perf- even performed yeah, composed Ethel by women. Smith, the the Ethel, Dame Ethel Smythe. And, and uh, uh, Sorry uh, Aho. Yeah. Before reading this article, I didn't realize that there had only ever been two Operas by women that have been performed. Which the isn't I, it kind of maddening? I bet the only reason why other people knew that is because they were talking about how there had only been one previous one when they were doing <laughs> yeah. L'Amour du Loin, the the Sahari yeah, opera. Was, what two years ago? Something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I know. Yeah, I think it was two years ago. Uh, yeah. Good piece, by the way. That's beside but the point. some <laughs> exciting news in this article. One that they're gonna do uh, some shows at BAM at Brooklyn Academy of Music, and at the Lincoln Theater or something like that, or um, the public the public theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that they're commissioning a operatic version of one of my favorite books, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Gay, by Michael <laughs> Michael Chabon, uh, and that they're looking at some Handel, uh, not, and not just Julius Caesar and uh, Ronaldo. Uh, they're looking at now Agrippina and Alcina. It was inter- oh, I love Alcina. It was interesting to me that they were doing, that they the pendulum has kind of swung back, that their big high-profile commissions are based on novels again. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the big thing recently has been to base them on movies and plays and other yeah. works of, th- you know, things that were introduced in a, in a visual medium. Yeah, which yeah. I always thought was a weird choice. But I believe they mentioned uh, possibly doing Lincoln and the Bardo, which is a big bestseller uh, right now. Um, and uh, I, I think that's a, a good plan for the Met to go forward with. And I think it could possibly uh, herald kind of a new era for the company uh, in the wake of the whole <coughs> Levine uh, thing. Um, and I think it's ultimately the right way forward for them. And I think it should be a model for how large opera companies should be doing things. Or, well, and it's, it's I, interesting, too, that Gelb says that, you know, the whole idea is with these collaborations, especially with the Brooklyn Academy of Music and putting these things out there and not just being in the opera house, um, are part of his continuing efforts to make the Met seem less elitist and more approachable. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about that is we've been saying that, um, you know, that's one way to get people of our generations in the seat. It's because none of us are making million-dollar donations to help underwrite these programs, but we do want to see them, and we do. I think there are a lot of people who aren't opera singers who would go if they knew that it was an approachable thing. And and actually, when we get into the two-minute drill, and we'll get there when we get there, but the Royal Opera House in England talks about this, too. It's the same thing. Like, suddenly, ballet and opera, there's these uh, suddenly part of the mission to seem more accessible. Yeah. And, and I, so whether or not the Met can be successful in in doing so... At least they're going to try, right? Yeah, and I think it's about time because I think the Met has been particularly resistant to trying these sorts of things, at least in recent recent years. You're listening to Opera Box Score on WNUR uh, and uh, David Dikiera. Uh, sorry. Oh, I just want to just say a little, just a tiny bit more news. Say all all of it in there. A little bit bit of news. Um, they are bringing opera back to the park. Uh, And I think. Oh, yay. And we, you know, didn't grow up. You know, in New York, none of us did, I don't think. But, you know, there was a time when people could see the opera for free and not just like the projected mm-hmm. movie in Lincoln Center, but an actual opera or actually concerts in, in Central Park. And they're bringing that back. And I think that goes a long way to de- developing audiences. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you think, you know, you guys know my affinity for Pavarotti. Yeah. And like in the early 90s, he Who? was doing yeah. concerts in Central Park, yeah. you know, contracted through the Met. And there's 500,000 people there. Yeah. And those are, you know, that inspired generations of people to love the art form. And so yeah. I agree to with you. Absolutely. Yeah. To buy handkerchiefs. Yeah. Now, one of those uh, inspiring people was David DiChiara, who was the founding general manager of Michigan Opera Theater and also a composer himself. Uh, he died last week, unfortunately, at the age of 83. For more on that story, we turn to co-host George Cedarquist. Take it away, George. Thanks, boys, so much for passing the ball over to me for a second. As... They said just a few moments ago, David DiChiara 
who was the general director of Michigan Opera Theater, died last week at 83 at his home in Detroit. He was battling pancreatic cancer. That battle had been going on for more than a year. And in the days to follow, so many people are going to have remembrances for David DiChiara. We obviously wanted to have a remembrance on our show as well. And I think of our team, I'm the one who perhaps knew David the best, and I only crossed paths with him twice. It's hard to overstate what a giant he was in this profession. When you think about it, this is a man who dedicated virtually his entire career to one opera company. And that opera company wasn't San Francisco. That wasn't Houston. That was an opera company in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, as we know, is a town, a city that has had some ups and some downs and some ups and some downs. And I think the opera company that Tahira ran had those ups and downs as well. But he never quit and he never gave up. And when you look at his career, a couple big things come to mind. First of all, Kathleen Battle was a singer who Dakira discovered in 1976, and he gave her her professional operatic debut as Rosina in Rossini's The Barber of Seville. And actually, in remembering Dakira, Kathleen Battle called him, quote, a gift to the artistic world. I'm so proud and grateful that he's been in my life from the earliest days. David DeCara had also been the president of Opera America. He was the president and current president, Mark Skorka, described DeCara as, quote, a visionary leader, ally, mentor, and gentleman who set a national standard of community service and entrepreneurial inventiveness. And Skorka is extremely articulate, and he's really called out there, I think, some of the hallmarks that DiChiara had. He had incredible ideas about what opera could be. He was very deft in raising money. In fact, MOT, in the wake of 2008 and that entire economic collapse, when MOT looked like many opera companies was going to get crushed in debt, DiChiara never gave up. And he turned to banks and to the auto industry in Detroit to raise money. And that would be a hallmark of his career all the way through to his death, including in 2013, when he got a group of banks to agree that um, they would cut MOT's debt if DeCara could raise $7 million in six months. And of course, he did. We talk about him as an artist. He commissioned the world premiere of Margaret Garner. That was in 2005. He debuted his own opera company, Cyrano, in 2007. Margaret Garner, of course, featured mezzo-zabrano Denise Graves. And then as late as 2016, he commissioned The Summer King with a Pittsburgh Opera, which was about Negro League's great Josh Gibson, and that just had its Detroit premiere in May. So when you look at his career, we have an artist who's a a composer and a writer. We have someone who knows how to run numbers, someone who knows how to connect to his community, which is so important in Detroit. You know, when you talk to Detroiters about the city of Detroit, as, as listeners will know, I'm from Ann Arbor, and it's a, it's a different world in Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, crunchy, liberal college town, Detroit, cold, auto city, which, like a phoenix, is trying to be risen from the ashes again. When you talk to people in Detroit, many will say, Detroit doesn't need to rise from the ashes because Detroit never died. You can argue either way about that. But Dakira, he never gave up on Detroit. And he realized that opera could be essential to reviving the economic value of Detroit and reviving the artistic value of Detroit. And back in the day... Michigan Opera Theater was based um, at the Masonic Temple, which was a huge venue just outside the city center. And this was probably 15 years ago when DiCara bought an old opera house and gathered the money, I think it was like 40 or $50 million that he raised in order to renovate this opera house. Excuse me, 
uh, $75 million, just checking the Detroit News article, $75 million. This is in the Grand Circus area. And that was in collaboration with the Detroit Lions, who play at Ford Field, and the Detroit Tigers, who play at Comerica Park. As you know, we're an opera and a sports show, so I always got to get a little bit of opera and sports crossover into the mix. So what you have now in downtown Detroit, in the circus area, is you've got the Lions and the Tigers playing, and you've got the Opera House. And the Opera House doesn't just host opera. It also hosts touring productions. It hosts the ballet. I don't think it hosts the symphony. But DeKira knew that he wanted the arts to be part of the rejuvenation of downtown Detroit, not just in sports, to the point where the parking, as you can imagine, can be madness, right? It's the Motor City. Everybody drives. What happens when you've got football, baseball, and the opera all happening on the same night? Well, Tigers haven't made the playoffs apart from that run a couple of years ago that they did in some time. Same with the Lions. The Lions absolutely uh, stunk last year, although they just beat the Patriots uh, last night. So that's, that's looking up. But in talking to him, he worked with the Lions and the Tigers to make sure that the schedules were such that no two events would be on the same night. He told me that when I met him in November of 2012, and this is the second time I met Dikiera. My father is a subscriber, by the way, to Michigan Opera Theater, and my father would be in the lobby at MOT, and uh, Dikiera would recognize my dad. My dad would mention my name. Dikiera would remember who I was, and this is after me having met him just two times. Election night, 2012, when President Obama was being reelected, I had a meeting with Dikiera, basically to pitch him my materials as a director, to reconnect after our first meeting, which I'll tell you about in a second. And what a gentleman he was. Opera American President Skorka described him as a gentleman in that earlier quote that I gave you. And what a gentleman he was. So I met him in uh, late afternoon. He invited me to join him for dinner at the Detroit Athletic Club, which is a um, private club. Uh, we had a great dinner. We talked about our art, opera, yes, but we also talked about family. We also talked about sports, quite frankly. Then from there, he walked me over to the Detroit Opera House, and I saw a production of Giulio Cesare, which was in its final dress rehearsal, I think. And I remember during the rehearsal, actually, the stage manager came on the God mic, which is the system they use to address the entire room, uh, to say that Obama had been re elected. That was quite a monumental event. What a gentleman and what a depth of knowledge that man had. The first time I met David DiCara, and I'm working backwards chronologically, was in 1989. I'm not going to tell you how old I was. And it was the first time I'd ever been in the opera. Somehow, my mom realized that Michigan Opera Theater needed two supernumeraries, or which is a fancy word for extra, for their production of Norma by Bellini. And my mom drove us into Detroit. We auditioned. I don't even know if DiCara was in the room or not. But somehow my brother and I got cast as Norma's children. If you know the opera, big scene in uh, Act 2 when she's deciding whether or not she should kill the children that she's had with this Roman centurion. And... Uh, the role of Norma, by the way, was sung by Dame Joan Sutherland. That's a whole other story, Dame Joan Sutherland and getting a chance to be on the stage with her. At that time, of course, I didn't have a clue who Dame Joan Sutherland was. All I knew was that she had the biggest bosom of any woman I'd ever met. And uh, on opening night, she gave me and my brother a box of chocolates shaped like a piano with the white keys being white chocolate and the black keys being dark chocolate. But I remembered Dakira saying congratulations to me and my brother after our bows, after opening night. I remember that thin pencil mustache. I remember that gelled brill cream hair that he had. His fantastic smile. And just pure class. I think if I had to sum up 
and wrap this segment up, what I would say about David DeCara is absolute pure class in terms of how he took care of his personal life, how he took care of his family of artists at MOT, how he dedicated his life to that company, how he drove it through financial problems, how he continued to push the art form aesthetically and artistically, and how ultimately it's a great loss for opera. And to be honest, I don't think they build general directors like Dakira anymore. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist signing off and singing it back to the boys in the studio. Thank you so much, George, for that uh, tribute to David DeCara, uh, who died earlier this week at the age of 83. Coming up next, they just dropped 50 million quid in the name of opera in London. Where exactly? That's next on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news and the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. Countertenor Anthony Roth Constanzo just released ARC, a recording that bridges the great countertenor gap, finding common ground between the music of Handel and Philip Glass. There's also a live production he's created to accompany the album, featuring choreography by Justin Peck, live artwork from painter George Kondo, and videos directed by nine artists, including Mark Romanek, James Ivory, Pix Talarchio, and Maruzzo Catalan. A newly opened transformation of the Royal Opera House to the tune of 50 million pounds will be a significant step towards opera and ballet losing their elitist tags, its directors hope. The Covent Garden building has been the subject of a three-year construction project paid, th- paid for through philanthropy, which formally opened to the public on Wednesday. It includes a new, more intimate performance space, the Linbury Theatre, a new airy public space with bigger terraces, a cafe, bar, restaurant, and a better shop. In the fall of 2019, Palm Beach Opera plans to unveil Opera a la Carte, a pop-up opera shows performed in a truck doubling as a stage at festivals, parks, and other venues. The plan calls for a menu of opera excerpts from which audience members can make selections. The truck will also transport performers and supplies to the opera's other outreach programs. And on this day, September 24th, two of the greatest baritones of the 20th century were born, both in 1922, Met favorite Cornell McNeil and Italian heartthrob Ettore Bastianini. Plus, in 1819, Rossini's La Donna del Lago premiered at the Teatro San Carlo, and two different operas by Gluck premiered La Cienci in 1754 and Echo et Narcisse in 1779. And that is your two minute drill. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. That's right. And now is your chance to call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Phone lines are open. You turn on the mic when we were having an argument about Gluck. Oh, they're just having an argument about Gluck. What's, what's your opinion <laughs> oh, I on think Gluck? they're so boring. I, they, they are. They're, they, are <laughs> they are boring. But the music can be a very exciting before the reform. I think, actually, the post-reform operas are boring. Yeah. 
I do uh, I do think I I do kind of see where you're coming from. I do there there's something about Gluck where he's he's got like the philosophical spirit of some of the greats, but he just never quite he didn't have the chops to pull it off and make yeah. it yeah. interesting. I feel like Gluck does hand the baton really nicely off to Berlioz, though. What Gluck does, yeah, at the that's end of fair. His career, that's yeah. fair. And then you have to decide if you like Berlioz. <laughs> I do like Berlioz, <laughs> okay. but Gluck does not do it so for me. You just Gluck is very early Berlioz, so very very. Anyway, early. I wanted Pre. to talk about uh, Anthony Roth Costanza because. I, you know, I've heard this man sing um, in the Enchanted Island and probably in something else, I forget what. But I just remember, like, when I first heard him before he was anybody, it's like, this is a super interesting artist. Like, mm-hmm. there's something about his presence and the way he sings that is just super unique and compelling. And he's gone on now to, on, on to do very interesting projects. And I've heard about this, um, you know, installation basically that he does where he sings like Handel Arias and. You know, he has like fashion designers and, you know, really cool set design. It's not even in uh, a, a theater. It's like in an art museum or something like that. So here's a person who's really thinking hard about how to make this music accessible and how to reach new audiences. And he really he's bringing in like super cool collaborators like Justin Peck. Uh, he's doing Philip Glass so that, you know, you're getting the people who are into Phil. the music. But he's also doing handles, so he's keeping his core audience and probably dragging his core audience to, you know, ex, you know, ex, uh, expand their taste. Like somebody like me, I'm not really that interested in Philip Glass, you know. But Academy I Award winner Philip Glass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, j- j- uh, James Ivory, you know, who is like super beloved in the, you know, the film community, in the cinema community, but also in the gay community, and just knowing your audience that well. And there's also this video, there's one of the videos that, that is released with this album is like this guy doing this solo hip-hop choreography to this Philip Glass aria. And can we hear a little bit of that Philip Glass? Yeah, let's, uh, let's take a little listen here. Uh, this is uh, him singing, and uh, if you go on YouTube, I'm sure we'll post the link and you can see the choreography that goes along with it. Definitely got that sort of Philip Glass boogie going to it. I, I have to issue a correction. He's only been nominated for an Academy Award. He's <laughs> okay. never won. But I mean, it also feels like um, neoclassicist or neo-broke. Like that's Philip really Glass does. really trying hard to sound like, you know, Stravinsky. Um, Sounding like Mozart <laughs> in the Rick's <laughs> Progress. <laughs> it's yeah. a whole weird family tree that yeah. kind of But it's just so, itself. I mean, it hits it hits the nail right on the head. or it, it, Like, it's just the right amount of everything. And so... Yeah, I, I can definitely recommend this album because between finding out about it uh, just a few hours ago and getting in the studio, I actually bought it and listened to the whole thing. Uh, and it, it really is a fascinating piece, and I, I can highly recommend it. it was, cool. Uh, well, hopefully we'll get Anthony Roth Costanzo on the show soon. I mean, yeah, that'd be great. So uh, how about this uh, <laughs> uh, Palm Beach Opera taco truck? <laughs> uh, I mean, without the, without the tacos. I well, think. you know, we had an interesting discussion about tacos in the studio earlier. <laughs> you did? And so what I think we're all about? a fit. Well, we, we were saying that the only thing that stops us from eating an infinite amount of tacos is shame. <laughs> And so perhaps the only I'll tra- thing... I'll trade that, Mark, that is basically thing, my catchphrase. <laughs> the only thing that would stop us from ordering more a la carte opera selections from a taco cart, uh, what do we call it, an opera truck, would be shame. Uh, no, but I asked Matt as a performer and Oliver as a performer, like, would you be nervous not knowing what you're going to do? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think... And we, I don't really what think... What would it, your menu be? What would your package be? <laughs> I'm confused. 
Well, I mean, I'm sure that the the like the artists as a part of this are gonna all show up, and you know they'll have a couple arias on the oh, list, okay. and like a couple. Oh. You didn't know that, like before you were born, I used to manage this place called the Raging Puccini Opera Cafe here in Evanston. I'm no. sorry, what? and we used to sing um, every night, like. 20, 30 minutes worth of opera selections, um, and no, we, there was never a program. So Here's were, like, my question for you, Oliver. Did you have a truck? No. But, um, <laughs> the, um, the program was decided at the last minute, and sometimes there'd be two sopranos, sometimes there'd be three sopranos, and they all wanted to sing Jiva Vivre, you know? So what are you going to do? You know? Right. So, so in your opinion, does this... Did they each sing one word of Jiva Vivre at a time? <laughs> oh, right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much harder than you think. Yeah. Um, wait, but I guess, you know, is this a way to actually engage with the community? Do we think this will be... Because I will say as a performer, I hate anything that's flash mobby or anything that's pop-up-y. I, I do agree Am with I you. Am I wrong? I agree with you in terms of flash mobs and pop-ups because you don't want it to be... I, I don't think it's effective to force art on people who aren't looking for it. Because <laughs> right. I, even as an opera singer, a lover of Hashtag opera, if too. I... You know, if if I encountered it in a red line station, like yeah. I wouldn't necessarily be thrilled. Sometimes yeah. I just want to listen to my podcasts yeah. and like not pay attention to the rest of the world. But what I like about this project is that it is uh, it, it's showing that arts can be economics, and they're trying to um, that because people always talk about how you know the arts don't make any money, the arts are nothing, but the entertainment industry is like a huge driver of economics and this um the these investors at pnc who are who are throwing the money into this are like are do do believe that this Mm -hmm. can be a source of pnc uh, supports programs and communities the bank serves that increase audience participation and engagement in the arts so i mean in from that standpoint yes i guess it's not that the opera company is trying to do this to save their budget or oh, right but but he says quality arts program is not only for enriching the residents and visitors it means business for the community it drives foot traffic it is an attraction uh and it's an attraction that can also have outside effects and speaking of making money uh the 50 million pounds dropped on the roh uh quid <laughs> quid. quid quid do i have to do it in a british accent 50 million pounds, as, I, governor. I as, asked you not to. <laughs> as, uh, I, do think, I do think this is a, a, a good, uh, uh, we'll post the article on a website. This is a Guardian article which describes how, um, how the renovations are meant to make opera more accessible. Uh, it'll provide more opportunities for free performances by operas. Um, they're built they're, a smaller theater for more intimate performances, which is great. Every every grand opera company in the world should be doing that. Now that's uh, why the Met is going to BAM and so the other spaces. Uh, yeah, but and not only are they offering a wide range of ticket prices from five pounds to forty five pounds, but a quarter of them are priced at twenty five pounds or less, which is something that. Uh, Upper companies in America definitely to get with because offering yeah, one yeah. row of seats in the back of the yeah. of the top balcony that will sell out on the first day, yeah. and then continuing to advertise those prices as being part of the range of available yeah. seats is like not helpful for helping people come to the opera. No, it's it's so hard, and particularly if you want to get. Uh, I was just talking to someone today. I was trying I was trying to convince him to uh, to go see Electra at the Lyric, and and he was just like. I'm not sure I can afford that. And I was like, I, I can't afford it either, but I'm going, okay, you know? a couple things. I just want to dovetail on something we were talking about a moment ago about um, forcing art on people. One thing I want to say about the taco truck thing is that I think that one of the disservices we do uh, when we do these pop-ups or put art in, or opera in weird spaces is we don't think about the acoustics. Right. And yeah. this is an acoustic art. And if you don't have the right venue and the right balance of sound or the right accompaniment it really does make the product feel incomplete you cheap know? And, uh, cheap but also like just wrong you know confusing and that's, even, yeah and that's not know? even the that's not a way to draw people to something that is so much about the sound speaking of sound i'd love to hear 30 seconds of cornell mcneil since uh, it, that's it all we got all we got okay. 30 seconds so this is cornell mcneil uh uh it in this finale to rigoletto yeah it's 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 gorgeous Matilda. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. 
on that note, we got to start wrapping things up. Who's got a good Curse call you for all. me? So there's this thing that a lot of people have already seen, but it's an article from McSweeney's that oh, yeah. tells you how to enjoy uh, opening night at the opera. It op- is the funniest the thing I've ever read. It's so good. We're each going to read an excerpt of it. I'll begin. Um, so these are like tips for how to enjoy opening night at the opera or how to enjoy going to the Met. Uh, here's one tip. It is traditional to throw celebratory tiaras onto the stage once a soprano has completed the hat trick of singing the lead queen roles in all three of Donatetti's <laughs> Tudor trilogy operas in, in a single Met season. The conductor might temporarily halt the opera so that the crowns may be cleared from the stage and the stage resurfaced if necessary before resuming. <laughs> I mean, to know that it was, this person really understands opera, it's hilarious and it's such an inside joke, but it's a great joke. So. Hey, Matt, do you have one? Yeah, my, one, one that I really enjoyed was... Cheering loudly outside the confines of an acknowledged applause break is disruptive and distracting. Instead, silently show the performer you're enjoying their singing by lighting her or him up with your, from your seat with a laser pointer. <laughs> Hit me with one, Toby. If you'll be seeing Verdi's La Traviata, be sure to prepare slices of toasted bread to throw at the stage during Act 1, when Gastone asks Baron Dufold to offer toast to Violetta and the Revelers. This and other wacky audience participation stunts have kept midnight performances of this opera running continually since 1852. (laughs) And I've got the last one here. Be sure to remain in your seat after the Barber of Seville until the house lights come up. There is a post-credits aria that intriguingly sets up next year's (laughs) Met production of The Marriage of Figaro. And that is all we got time for tonight. Uh, you can check out the complete list on our website, Opera Box Score. Um, our general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at boxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera wherever you'll be able to kick off the fall opera season. We're back on Monday, October 1st at 9 p.m. Central with more opera news and hot takes. Join us then. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. Emotion.